Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin. In this episode, we're talking about IUGR, which stands for intrauterine growth restriction. Simply put, that's when a baby in the womb doesn't grow as big as is expected. Diagnosing IUGR, figuring out the underlying cause, and determining the best course of care can be quite tricky. My guest today is here to help us better understand IUGR. He is a highly sought-after Los Angeles-based expert practicing obstetrics, gynecology, maternal fetal medicine, and specializing in high-risk pregnancy. He has extensive training and experience, abundant accolades, and a passion for both medical research and teaching. Dr. Stephen Rad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Berlin, for this opportunity to join you for a podcast today. It certainly is an honor for me. And it's an honor to have you, hopefully the first of many. Before we jump into the topic at hand, I got to ask you how you got the coolest name in the world, Dr. Rad. <laughs> well, simply, I was born with that name. <laughs> you come from an entire Rad family? Yes, a very long lineage of and large Rad family. Uh, you know, when I heard about you a couple of years ago, they were like, yeah, you got to meet Dr. Rad. I was like, what? My name is so boring. And I wanted to change it from Dr. Berlin to Dr. Bodacious. <laughs> But I wasn't born with such a cool name. Anyway, where are you from originally? So I was born and raised and grew up in Los Angeles and I haven't really ever left. I completed my undergraduate training at USC, my medical school at UCLA, and residency and fellowship training at Cedar Sinai Medical Center. I only left LA for a short period of time to be on faculty at UCSF Medical Center, but quickly returned to be with my roots and family here in Los Angeles. I now have a lovely family of six with my wife. We have 14-month-old twin baby girls and just now a three-week-old boy. And our firstborn, as we call him, our dog. So our hands are full, but it's quite an exciting time for us. Wow. Congratulations. I have no idea how you got a way to do this podcast, but I'm grateful. <laughs> Thank you. Did, Luckily, did, I'm a supportive wife. Amazing. I couldn't do anything without my wife. Did you come from a family of doctors? When did you develop an interest in medicine? Um, yes, actually, my mother is an internal medicine specialist, and so I was passionate about becoming a doctor from a young age, but I really developed my interest in middle school. Was there a specific thing that kind of triggered you? So growing up, I loved science, and during middle school, I started teaching a lot on helping other students, and I was always like an honor student, and so the combination of teaching and my love for science and my background with my mother and working in, and volunteering in her office really started my interest in medicine. And then I looked into it and wanted to become a surgeon. In middle school, you realized you wanted to be a surgeon? Yes. That's not what I ended up doing surgeries as well, but... Like a general surgeon? Yeah. I wanted to be a general surgeon and, and surgical oncologist taking care of cancer. And then when I went to medical school, it was like the first or second week of medical school, the OBGYN interest group came to our class and offered to have any of the students attend labor and delivery at UCLA. And I thought it would be a cool story to tell friends and family. And I went in uh, one of the nights and I experienced my first birth and they told me about gynecologic oncology, which is a specialist in women's cancer surgery. And it was completely unexpected, but to be experiencing and seeing your first birth. And it was very new because I was always thinking of surgical oncology and dealing with cancer and ultimately death. And then I got to see this whole new side of medicine and bringing life into the world. And then they said, well, you can do that. Plus be a gynecologic oncologist, which is being an expert surgeon in women's cancers. And so 
I fell in love with OB completely unexpected. Uh, they offered and I really wanted to share with my family and friends that I got to see at birth, but I, I fell in love with OBGYN that night. And once I went into residency, I got more exposed to the obstetric side and fell in love with maternal fetal medicine. And like gynecologic oncology, you deal with critical situations and critical pregnancies and helping women and babies deliver safely and bringing life into the world safely. And so I fell in love with that and also fetal surgery, which was in utero surgery, which is one of my passions and something that I'm very interested in. And so that's the story of how I got into medicine (laughs) and unexpectedly into OBGYN and then ultimately into maternal fetal medicine. Okay, so first of all, we I definitely want to do an episode about fetal surgery while the baby's still inside. That sounds crazy and like it needs its own episode. But in short, what you're saying is you went to medical school because of your passion for medicine and surgery and cancer surgery specifically. Very early on, you got exposed just because you thought it would be a cool story to childbirth and uh, overnight labor and delivery. And then you switch to, because you're still thinking cancer, you switch to gynecological oncology, women's cancer. And then you later fell in love with MFM, maternal fetal medicine. So for maternal fetal medicine and for gynecological oncology, you first become an OBGYN, right? You specialize in obstetrics and gynecology, and then you further specialize? Right. So first you do a residency in obstetrics and gynecology, and that's four years. And then you can go out to practice obstetrics and gynecology, or you can continue your studies. And that's called fellowship training or subspecialty training. And under the umbrella of OBGYN, you can choose gynecologic oncology, maternal fetal medicine. You can choose reproductive endocrinology or infertility, family planning, minimally invasive gynecologic surgery, as well as pediatric gynecology. And those are extra training. And so I chose, as we discussed, maternal fetal medicine training. And so subspecialty training in that at Cedars-Sinai as well. I mean, generally when an OBGYN goes for a fellowship and becomes a specialist, specifically in maternal fetal medicine, do they generally continue to practice obstetrics or do they start to consult for other OBGYNs? Yeah, so this is a very important topic and question that you bring up. And so it depends sort of on what your interest is and also where you're practicing. So in some parts of the country, it may be very normal for the maternal fetal medicine specialist to continue both obstetrics and consulting as a high-risk pregnancy specialist. In other parts, you may just be really focused on consulting as a high-risk pregnancy specialist and doing ultrasound. So my passion, you know, going into OBGYN was obstetrics and first was gynecologic cancers. But once I started the residency, I found love with obstetrics and delivering babies and, and obstetrical surgeries, as well as high risk. And so personally, I continue to do both obstetrics or deliveries, as well as maternal fetal medicine, high risk pregnancy as a consultant. So both on my own patients, as well as patients for other obstetricians who take care of the high risk pregnancy. So I do a combination of both. And so just depends on your passion. I would say that the majority of maternal fetal medicine specialists mainly focus on just the high risk pregnancy consultations and the maternal fetal medicine or MFM part of the practice of specialty, but there are some of us like myself who continue to do both. And it only makes sense because that's why I went into it to begin with, because I love both. 
So when you continue your obstetric practice, is it both high-risk and general OB, or are all your patients more in the high-risk category? So maternal fetal medicine specialists or high-risk pregnancy specialists, forgetting about the OB part, focus both on low and high-risk pregnancies and normal and high-risk pregnancies. Sure. By virtue of the specialty, we specialize in the non-routine or when your pregnancy is anything but routine or one that requires extra care and we deal with the complications of the mother and fetus. But all pregnancies require at least screening, you know, ultrasound or an initial baseline consultation or genetics consultation with a maternal fetal medicine specialist. And we never know who's going to become high risk. Sure, there are some pregnancies that start out high risk because of a maternal condition that was pre-pregnancy or from a prior pregnancy or a fetal complication or abnormality that was diagnosed early on. But a lot of the other pregnancies that become high risk, we don't know until later. So generally you are see a high risk pregnancy specialist from the first trimester, kind of get plugged in, and then you're followed by your obstetrician. And then if you become high risk, you're sent back for more, you know, specialized care along with your obstetrician. In terms of my practice, I do both low and high risk pregnancies. You know, there are some patients who want closer monitoring and they have low risk pregnancies and we monitor those pregnancies as well. And the high risk pregnancies require extra monitoring for sure. But it is nice to take care of low risk women who just want extra monitoring. With regards to also my practice, I have a close relationship with many midwives in Los Angeles support women with both low and high risk pregnancies who are under the care of midwives. And uh, we have a special program for those women who are high risk and want a hospital midwife birth with the Los Angeles midwife group. And so I also, you know, work closely with the midwives. Wow. So um, you, you, know, you have the full spectrum, you know, low risk, more naturally minded pregnancies and births to um, higher risk and sometimes high intervention pregnancy and birth. Exactly. You know, I love my specialty. And so I want to be able to serve the whole spectrum, which is unique among some of the high risk pregnancy specialists. And part of that was because for a short period of time, when I went to the UCSF, they have a high risk midwife program and I got exposed to that. Oh wow! And then I had the opportunity to work with the LA midwife group here with Lilith and Naomi. And, you know, you're sort of trained as a high risk pregnancy specialist to be very complex monitoring and very close monitoring, but working with the midwives, they help you become a little bit more open-minded and support those women who are either low or especially high risk and want a midwife. And so I'm open to that too. And it's one of my passions to giving those women that the opportunity to have both cares. And so, so I support the full spectrum and, and I love it. All right. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we are going to talk all about IUGR. We'll be right back with Dr. Stephen Pratt. <laughs> hey, everyone, it's Dr. Berlin, and I want to talk to you about something that is close to my heart, literally, omega-3. It's a crucial nutrient that's sadly overlooked. With 95% of women deficient, Needed, the supplement brand I trust, created their brand new omega-3 soft gels. Designed by perinatal experts, they support you and your baby's well-being from fertility to pregnancy and beyond. Unlike other brands, Needed's Omega-3 is sustainable, pesticide-free, and third-party tested for purity. Plus, my favorite, it has a milder taste and smell, perfect for sensitive mamas. 
Don't wait. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code BERLIN to get 20% off your initial order. Experience the needed difference, consciously crafted for your health and the planet. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking to Dr. Stephen Rad. The topic of this episode is IUGR. Let's jump right in. Dr. Rad, what exactly is IUGR? Okay, Dr. Berlin. So one of the major focuses of prenatal care is to determine whether the fetus is growing normally and to identify those that are not. Fetal growth is a reflection of the interaction of the fetus, is predetermined growth potential and the effects of the health of the fetus, the placenta and the mother, plus genetic and environmental influences. So IUGR, intrauterine growth restriction, and we'll talk more a little bit about the terminology, or fetal growth restriction is a term that's used to describe when a baby or fetus isn't growing as quickly as they should inside the womb, and as a result has not reached its full growth potential. And IUGR, or fetal growth restriction, may be pathological or abnormal, or it may be constitutional or physiologically normal small fetus. When we talk about this now, when we talk about what constitutional or physiologically normal small fetus, these constitutional factors include the maternal ethnicity, parity, their body mass index, and genetics, for example. And as many as 70% of fetuses that may be small, that are identified as being small, may be due to constitutional factors and not actually pathological. So when you say small, compared to who? Meaning if you have two large parents, I would assume you expect a larger baby. If you have two very small parents, I assume you're expecting a smaller baby. So just based on genetics, when we say babies measuring small, who are we comparing them to? Okay, so officially, IUGR is defined as an estimated fetal weight or an abdominal circumference below the 10th percentile for the stage of the pregnancy. And it's determined by comparing the fetal weight or abdominal circumference to what we call growth standard or reference. And there are various growth standards and references that have been developed over the years. Actually, the most accurate one is by Hadlock from the 1980s. And then there's some that are population or ethnicity specific or even specific to the parents' factors like their ethnicity and their size and genetics, as you were alluding to. So when we're defining IUGR less than the 10th percentile, we're comparing it to these reference charts, which are sort of generalized. The issue with that is that you may overcall IUGR when actually the fetus can be normal or physiologically small because of constitutional factors like the parents being small. Mm-hmm. Similarly, if the parents are big, you may define a fetus as being normal, you know, for example, the 20th percentile, but based on their parents' size, they should really be at the 80th or 90th percentile. So you may miss those because they're above the 10th percentile. So there is some error or inaccuracies in the definition because of this issue with constitutional factors. And so you may be undercalling or overcalling IUGR because you're comparing it to just a standard growth reference. That makes sense. So, you know, are there other factors that you use to diagnose besides just, you know, how this baby compares in size to the standard growth reference chart? Yeah, so we define fetal growth restriction as less than 10% on the growth standard for the estimated fetal weight or the abdominal circumference. But then as we go into the monitoring and management of IUGR, which we'll probably discuss later, 
We look at the other factors, including the maternal characteristics. We look at how the baby is growing in between uh, over a two to three week period. We look at the amniotic fluid volume, the placenta function. And so oftentimes we take the cautious route and we don't assume that it's constitutionally small or normal. And we monitor closely, but we don't necessarily take action. So there's a lot of monitoring that goes along, ultimately determining if there's something pathologic or dangerous going on. And you're needing like, for example, early delivery, but, you know, in the absence of these secondary factors, we don't take action in terms of like delivering early unless there is, you know, something else like the fluid being abnormal or placenta findings or blood flow abnormalities in terms of making actual decisions. So the the definition is just a baseline screening to determine, you know, which fetuses are at risk for poor outcomes during the pregnancy or being small at birth. Okay. Some people don't really do that many ultrasounds during a pregnancy. So without ultrasound, what would be the first sign that maybe there's a growth problem? Okay, right. So that goes into the prenatal screening and detection of fetal growth restriction. I might add just really briefly. So basically, IUGR is the fetus isn't growing well in utero or suspected to not be growing well in, in utero. And in terms of the terminology, we use IUGR as intrauterine growth restriction. It was also known as intrauterine growth retardation, so you may hear that term. But the current or more modern term is fetal growth restriction, or FGR, which is really the most clear and proper terminology. In terms of diagnosing and screening for fetal growth restriction, or FGR, which you just brought up, this is very important. So there are two ways to screen for IUGR. And one of them is in the case that you're not getting ultrasounds, like you mentioned. So that's where we look at the symphysis fundal height measurement. So this is the measurement of the distance between the upper edge of the pubic symphysis bone and the top of the uterine fundus or the top of the mother's belly. And you use a simple tape measure, usually starting after 20 weeks gest- gestational age. And the mother's belly or fundal height should be a certain number of centimeters that corresponds to how many weeks there are. So believe it or not, if you're like 32 weeks, your fundal height should be 32 centimeters. And if your fundal really? height, yeah, <laughs> it conveniently matches. <laughs> and if your fundal height is at least three centimeters, as we say off more than two centimeters, less than what it should be for that gestational age, then there's a suspicion that it might be a fetal growth restriction. Then you reflex the checking of the fetal weight on ultrasound. Oh, yeah. Just a quick question about that. It seems to me that there's, a again, a wide variation in how large or small someone's belly is, regardless of the pregnancy. Absolutely. You know, if you have a large body mass index or you have fibroids in your uterus or you, there's increased fluid or just the way the shape of your body is, then your fundal height can be off or if you have like a smaller frame, for example. And so this is just a screening tool. It's actually been shown to be pretty good. And if your funnel height is less than three centimeters, less than it should be, then we reflex the ultrasound. So no one, you know, you're not being diagnosed with IUGR at that point. It just is, a, you know, a screening tool to say, okay, now you need to get an ultrasound to check the fetal weight. Okay, great. And then you said there's the second, a second screening measure. Yeah, the second method is what you said is those folks who are getting universal ultrasound. And generally we do those at approximately 18 to 20 weeks and then 28 to 32 weeks. And then again, around 36 weeks. If you were going to get one ultrasound, it would be best to do it at 32 to 36 weeks. And when you're looking at ultrasound at the percentile, are we looking at 
how much we think they weigh? Okay, so with regards to the ultrasound, so we measure the estimated fetal weight of the fetus using biometric measurements, as they're called, measuring the baby's head size, the femur length, and the abdomen circumference. And this gives us an estimated fetal weight. And then we compare the fetal weight to the population-based growth reference, which we discussed. And that tells us what the fetal size should be for that gestational age and or that stage of the pregnancy. And using the graph, you can determine what percentile your fetus is at. And so we look at the estimated fetal weight percentile and the abdominal circumference percentile. And if either of them are less than the 10th percentile, then that constitutes or you meet the uh, criteria for fetal growth restriction. Here you're talking about the baby's abdominal circumference. Correct. Okay. How accurate, because you basically, it sounds like you're saying you take three measurements of size and come up with a, an estimated fetal weight. Is that a measurement that you do or the ultrasound machine does for you? And how accurate is it? Yeah, so that's where, you know, you want someone with expertise in ultrasound to do it because it's done by, not by the ultrasound machine, but by a human. You measure the fetal head size, the abdomen, and the femur. And along, we can also measure other bones and other parts of the fetal brain, for example. And it can give you various ratios, but you get uh, multiple measurements of each of those. And then they should be very close to each other. And there are certain landmarks, you know, certain positions the fetus needs to be in and certain landmarks of the head and abdomen and the femur that you measure very carefully. And then there is a formula that's stored in the machine um, that was created in the 1980s. And that combines these various measurements and gives you the estimated fetal weight. Okay. So you as a human make the measurements and then the machine uses the formula to come up with a estimated fetal weight. My question is also how accurate is that fetal weight? It seems like we have ways to tell because um, we do estimated fetal weights all the way up to the end, and then the baby's born, we can actually weigh them. So Yes. So there's about a 10 to 15% error, and the more experienced you are in ultrasound, the more careful you are with your measurements, the better you are. And I checked personally for the years. I've been checking if they're born here at Cedars or one of our affiliate hospitals I have access to. I checked. And I did an ultrasound close to time of birth, or especially if I was following them for IUGR, I checked the birth weight and see how close I was. Um, and over the years, I've been able to, you know, perfect my measurement. But in general, I'm very critical of myself and I go back and check. But unfortunately, I'm proud to say that I get very close measurements to the actual weight. But in general, you know, depending on the, the operator, as we call it, who's doing the ultrasound, there's a 10 to 15% error. And, you know, no matter how good you are in ultrasound, the formula isn't perfect. The ultrasound machine isn't perfect. The measurements aren't perfect. There will be some error and and you may not always get exactly bullseye on the, the fetal birth weight. That's why, along with measuring the fetal growth, when we decide to do any interventions, particularly delivering early, we look at the amniotic fluid volume, we look at the fetal movements, or what we call it biophysical profile, we look at blood flow and umbilical cord, and the, the placenta and the, and the fetal brain, and making decisions about when to deliver. So we don't decide in isolation based on the weight, we look at these various factors. We also look at the growth or the weight in between the ultrasounds and, and the trajectory or the you know, the inner, what we call the interval growth or the trajectory of the growth of the fetus between the ultrasounds and determining what course of action to take. 
And so, sure, you want someone who has expertise in ultrasound, who does a lot of growth measurements, who is a specialist in high-risk pregnancies. And it's better if the same person scans you each time. That makes sense. Okay, I want to know also, like, the treatments and the options once you figure out that the baby's not growing well. But we're going to take a quick break, and we will talk about those when we get back. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking about IUGR with Dr. Stephen Redd. All right, Dr. Redd, when in the pregnancy does IUGR tend to develop, or could it be any time? So IUGR can develop any time. It's more cause for concern the earlier it happens rather than later in the pregnancy. And therefore, IUGR is classified as early or late, and it's also defined as symmetric or asymmetric. So early IUGR is less than 32 weeks and late IUGR is after 32 weeks. And the symmetric IUGR is when everything is growing small and asymmetric IUGR, which is the majority of IUGR is when specifically the abdomen size is small compared to the head size and femur. Does, and does so, that indicate anyway, something IUGR, specific to you? Yeah, so asymmetric IUGR the abdomen size specifically reflects the subcutaneous fat tissue and liver volume where sugar stores are in. And so the idea is that if your abdomen is small in particular, then there might be an issue with the nutrition or placental function to the fetus. And so that comprises about 70 to 80% of the IUGR that we see. And symmetric, which is about 20 to 30% of the IUGR population that we see, is when all the measurements are small. Those cases are more likely to be early onset and more pathologic where everything is growing small and we worry about more genetic factors, you know, genetic abnormalities, for example. Um, I just have a question pop into my head because I have a place where I'm going with this, but this is kind of a side topic. Is there a correlation between how much weight the pregnant person gains and the growth of the baby? So... There may be, not necessarily, but there may be. One of the indicators of IUGR may be poor maternal weight gain or the other way around, poor maternal weight gain may increase your risk, especially in the second and third trimester of IUGR. And so maternal weight gain is important. It may increase the risk by twofold of developing IUGR. Or if you also have poor maternal weight gain, that may signify the fetus isn't growing well. And, you know, you may want to check for the fetal size. So in both directions, poor maternal weight gain may signify an abnormality. But I have to say, even in the face of poor maternal weight gain, the placenta is a very special organ and tends to take the appropriate nutrients needed to feed the baby. So, you know, you would have to be pretty malnourished in order for it to start the effect. The baby, though, mother's nutrition and weight gain is very important. Okay, aside from nutrition and the weight gain, what are some of the other potential causes or risk factors for IUGR? So I like to break up, you know, the causes of IUGR into what we say maternal uh, or the mother and then the placenta or uterus abnormalities and then fetal and genetic and infectious abnormalities. So we always, whenever we are faced with a high-risk pregnancy, or a fetal complication, we always think mother, 
fetus and placenta. So some of the causes of IUGR can be a placenta abnormality where the placenta isn't functioning well, not giving proper nutrition to the baby. There can be a genetic abnormality, such as a chromosomal abnormality. You can have fetal birth defects. You can also have abnormal placenta from preeclampsia. And then you can have infections, such as CMV or cytomegalovirus and toxoplasmosis. You can have maternal conditions like hypertension, uh, diabetes, even though diabetes can give you big babies as well, asthma, thyroid abnormalities, cardiac abnormalities in the mother, alcohol use, drug use, smoking, other environmental exposures. And then in the case of constitutionally small fetuses, there can be certain ethnicities such as Asian or Indian population, which oftentimes have small babies. So do they just have small babies, but they're healthy or are they more at risk for IUGR? No, those certain ethnicities tend to have smaller babies, but that's just because that's their genetic makeup. And those are the healthy, normal, or what we call physiologic or constitutionally small fetuses. Again, it's a problem of these generic reference charts or growth charts that we compare the fetal weight to or define the, the small fetal weight does not take into account the ethnicity. And right. so as a result, they're overcalled. They're, they're incorrectly called IUGR when it's just because of the, their ethnicity. It almost feels like we should have various charts depending on ethnicity and other factors. So I know, not to take too much time, but there are certain charts that have been developed based on ethnicity and country of origin. I mean, they have tried very, very hard to what we call customize the growth charts. But in terms of outcomes and determining actual birth weights and stuff, we always reflex back to one of the most common charts, which is from the 1980s, are called the Hadlock chart believe it or not, still seems to be the most accurate in determining. There's been many, many international studies trying to find the best customized growth charts, but we still reflex back to the basic one. It almost feels like it should be an app that you enter certain... <laughs> They've tried that too. They do exist. There's an app you plug in at the bedside by ethnicity, but and some people still do that in practice, but the most common one is still this basic one for the, the Hadlock chart. Okay. Does IUGR, not just small babies, but actual IUGR run in families? I mean, those we tend to think more those to be the constitutionally small or normally small fetuses, unless there's some kind of genetic abnormality that's running in the family or pathological. I mean, I'm not sure if you're asking, you know, if your mom or sister had IUGR. Exactly. Possibly. We don't necessarily use that as a screening, or I don't really necessarily separate those women. But if there is a concern or it tends to run in the family, we would have a heightened surveillance or heightened monitoring for those cases or, you know, specifically focus on the fundal heights, for example. How common is IUGR? So IUGR depends on the population, but generally about 3 to 8% or so. 3 to 8% that need more monitoring or 3 to 8% who ultimately are diagnosed with a true clinical problem? No, those that need monitoring and the actual true, you know, small for gestational age, birth weights are even less. Smaller. Okay. Once you figure out that the baby is truly measuring small and there's a problem, what are the courses of action that you can take and when do you do it? Okay. So once you're diagnosed with IUGR, we have very close surveillance of the pregnancy. The mother gets an ultrasound and monitors at least weekly. We monitor the growth every two to three weeks. You would be getting a non-stress test, which we can talk about weekly or up to two to three times a week. 
So non-stress test, that's where the mother is strapped to a fetal heart rate monitor or belt. And you monitor the fetal heart rate for about 20 to 30 minutes. And it's called a non-stress test. We look for specific patterns in the fetal heart rate that signify that the fetal heart rate is reacting or changing normally to movements and changes in the fetal physiology of the heart. And this lets us know that the fetal brain is being perfused well with blood and oxygen, the placenta is functioning well, the nerves of the heart and the fetal physiology are basically working properly. Um, so we look, look at a specific fetal heart rate pattern when you're under the monitor, the non-stress test. Okay, so we talked about doing ultrasound and monitoring the fetal growth and then checking the fetal growth every two to three weeks. We talked about doing a non-stress test every week or sometimes up to two to three times a week, depending on the level of concern. And then the next thing we look at is blood flow and umbilical cord. And this is done by doing Doppler ultrasound and it measures the speed of the blood flow and umbilical cord. And this tells us the resistance of the blood flow in the placenta and how the placenta is functioning and how blood is flowing through the umbilical cord, which is extremely important since the baby's life depends on the placenta and the umbilical cord to function and the blood flow in that. And depending on what other factors you find in the fetus, whether it's a birth defect or other abnormalities that suggest a genetic or infectious abnormality, we would be getting infection genetic testing as well. So these are all more along the lines of diagnosis, like trying to make sure that the baby's getting what they need. What if you find out that they aren't? Okay, so that's a great question. So you're doing all this monitoring. And so you're doing all this monitoring. What do you need to do if any of those are abnormal? So if the fetus stops growing in these every two to three ultrasounds, or there's an abnormality in a non-stress test, or there's really most importantly an abnormality in the blood flow and umbilical cord, Something just to add really quickly, in addition to the non-stress test, whenever you do a non-stress test, we also check the amniotic fluid volume, which along the same lines is the, the amniotic fluid volume tells us how the placenta is functioning, how the fetus is urinating, because fluid is largely the fetal urine. And if the baby is getting hydrated, well, it's going to pee a lot, just to be mm -hmm. frank. And so the fluid volumes will be very important. But anyway, so you're doing all this monitoring, the blood flow, the NSTs, the amniotic fluid volume, and the growth in between every two to three weeks. And if there's an abnormality in any of these parameters, then they're increased the monitoring or you start thinking about delivery. So the fetus isn't growing, then depending on the gestational age, you may decide to deliver the fetus or admit him to the hospital and, and do continuous monitoring. If there's an abnormality in non-stress test, similarly, you might send him to the hospital for further monitoring. If there's an abnormality in the blood flow and umbilical cord or amniotic fluid volume, you would send them to the hospital for extra monitoring. And depending on the degree of abnormality in any of these factors, you would decide whether or not early delivery is warranted. Early delivery is before 38 or 39 weeks of gestation. So because the baby, for example, depends on the blood flow and umbilical cord and the placenta function, if the blood flow and umbilical cord is so abnormal, sometimes we deliver the fetus as early as 32 to 34 weeks. Or let's oh. say you're 36 weeks and the baby stops growing, then maybe it's better to take the baby out and feed it outside if it's not growing inside. So the ultimate idea is when to deliver the fetus because the risk of IUGR is if there is something wrong, is the baby not getting nutrition, not getting oxygen, in the worst case, so there's a placenta abnormality. And so those can cause stillbirth or brain injury. And so you want to prevent that from happening. So the whole idea of all this monitoring is to prevent a stillbirth or brain damage 
And so the purpose of the, all the monitoring, if you see any abnormalities, the next step would be to admit him to the hospital, do closer monitoring. And then if any of the parameters are abnormal, then it's better to deliver significantly abnormal enough, then it's better to deliver the fetus because we don't want to have a stillbirth or brain injury, you know, that defeats the whole purpose of having a healthy baby. Are there Um, remedies that you can do to help the baby grow? Like if you're not at that point where you need to send them to the hospital or bring the baby early, are there nutritional things that they can do? If, for example, you see that there's a small belly on the baby, are there nutritional changes? Or if you see the blood flow not perfusing well, then could they increase their exercise or perhaps you would recommend bed rest? Or are there any medical interventions that can be done? Like sometimes you said it's caused by infection. Can we control the infection rather than deliver the baby? Uh, Those are great questions. So logically, you would think that correcting some of those abnormalities, we identify an underlying cause that that would help. Unfortunately, based on evidence-based medicine, as we call it, and research, Unfortunately, there is not necessarily any dietary changes or supplements or medications you can give or bed rest to fix or prevent IUGR. We don't recommend bed rest anymore. So there's not necessarily evidence to show that those things matter. But we do want to ensure the mother has proper nutrition. She's not skipping meals. She's not malnourished. She's gaining proper weight. We want to make sure she's hydrated, getting adequate rest. Probably going to exercise is not the best idea at that point. You want to make sure that the uterus and placenta are perfused, you know, and so you want to sort of spare, you know, your blood flow and energy and resources to the uterus and placenta. So officially, there is not evidence, you know, research-based evidence to show that those things matter, but obviously you want to mitigate any obvious causes. You make sure, like we said, the proper nutrition, hydration, and adequate rest we do not recommend bed rest. There isn't any specific medication you can give. In terms of infections, in very special cases, you can treat the infections. But these infections, to be honest with you, are generally very rare and are not the majority of causes of IUGR. Those are very rare instances where you see CMV and toxoplasmosis. The majority of the causes tend to be placental abnormalities. And so officially there's not, but we do want to make sure that the mother is taking the proper precautions and keeping her in the best health possible. Along those lines, you want to make sure there aren't any medications that are causing IUGR. The blood pressure is well controlled in our population, but not smoking, drinking alcohol, or using drugs, or they may be, and you don't know. Those also contribute to IUGR? Yes, definitely. And so it's something to talk about and make sure with them, even though you may not suspect it in your patient, but it's possible. You never know what they're doing. So it's important to make sure there's nothing underlying, obviously causing it. All right. Doc, um, but- I got one last question that I think anybody who experienced a IUGR pregnancy would want to know. Does having IUGR in a pregnancy increase your risk of having IUGR in future pregnancies? Yes, definitely there's an increased risk in your future pregnancies and women who have previous IUGR are recommended to monitor their fetal growth. And I personally recommend doing, you know, universal ultrasound screening in your subsequent pregnancy, making sure there's no another underlying factors that we discussed and removing those and making sure you're in your best health before you become pregnant. And in some cases where there may be preeclampsia or concerns for preeclampsia, aspirin may be recommended as a preventative measure in the future pregnancies. Dr. Rad, you have twin girls, and as fate would have it, they experienced IUGR. Tell me more about your experience with it. 
so it's interesting because you just asked, you know, about IUGR happening again. So, you know, yes, I have 14-month-old twins, girls, and my wife just had a baby three weeks ago. Both pregnancies were complicated by IUGR. The twins were IUGR and we were being monitored very closely during the pregnancy. She did end up breaking her bag of water early at 31 weeks. So that's a different story. And the babies ended up being born at two pounds, small for their age, and were in the NICU for two months. Oh, wow. Our second pregnancy, our third baby, was born at 37 weeks, a little early on purpose because he was not growing well in between the last couple ultrasounds. Uh, and he was born at five pounds. And so my wife experienced IUGR in both pregnancies. And in both pregnancies, the, the amniotic fluid volume, the blood flow and umbilical cords, the growth in between the ultrasounds and towards the end of the pregnancy, and both, they were normal up towards the end. Our last pregnancy, we had to deliver a little early because it stopped growing. But because it happened twice and because these other parameters, there was no other birth defects, Thing, got any genetic abnormalities, for example. My wife herself is very petite. And so personally, I think it might be constitutional. She might just make small babies. But we did do all the monitoring that we discussed. And in fact, the, like I said, in the second pregnancy, we ended up having to deliver a few weeks early because the baby stopped growing. And she was already at term at 37 weeks, or early term, I should say. And so it made sense to deliver her and have the baby come out and feed it and have it grow outside since it didn't seem to be growing anymore inside. Thank you for sharing that personal experience, Dr. Rad. I learned a lot. I'm extra grateful for having you on here. I know that our audience will learn a lot from this. I appreciate that you took time from your family of six to carve out a little time to help us out and understand this important topic. Where can we find you online? So you can find me, I have a website, drsteverad.com, and we also have Instagram at drstevrad, or you can just call us and we'll be happy to take care of you and answer any questions you may have. Amazing. Thank you so much. And at home, thanks for listening to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. For more pregnancy and parenting-related media, occasional giveaways, and bonus clips, follow me on Instagram at drberlin, that's at D-O-C-T-O-R. B-E-R-L-I-N. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a whole lot of questions for you. This kid's going